it's old timey crimey. <laughs> Mixing it up, changing things a little bit. Same words, but just spoken half and half. <laughs> like two new college roommates making their first outgoing answering machine message. People don't even have answering machines anymore. No, that's true. They really don't. They oh, Today's college students miss out on that little milestone. I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. I never had that either. But I, I did college kind of vicariously through you. So <laughs> You really did. My freshman year, I had the, the matte, almost see-through purple phone. Oh, look <laughs> at you, Miss Fancy Pants. I was quite Fancy Pants. So, uh, I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week with your dose of historical true crime, and you are going to take your medicine. <laughs> I don't know why I tried to make that sound sexy, but it happened. I, I don't know why that sounded sexy. Yeah, I was, I was confused by that. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Nobody does. I don't. The listeners don't. It's time to take your medicine. <laughs> You're like the naughty nurse of true crime right now. I am. But not some of the naughty nurses that we've talked about in the past who kill people. So just a different kind of naughty nurse. Different naughty nurse. <laughs> yes. So before we get started, as always, we would like to invite you to come check out our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And there you can get bonus episodes. We release five a month. And it's five bucks a month, a buck an episode. Can't beat that. And it's awesome. So you should just do it. It is awesome. I just told Amber about the coffin affair. The coffin affair. And there was a jailbreak at one point that used one of the, one of the classics, I think, of jailbreaks. And I'm not going to say what, because that'll spoil it, but it is hilarious. And very artistic. Yes, very artistic. A lot of craftsmanship. And also, we still don't know if, if it was bears or Could not. have been bears. Could have been bears. So, also, we are over on Good Pods. And I know that some of you must be listening over there because we keep charting every week. So, Which is awesome. It's awesome. I love it. We now have a tip jar there. So, if you listen to an episode that you particularly like or if you just want to throw a little bit of support our way, you can leave us a buck or two on our Good Pods nightstand. We have extra nightstands. Yes, we're just nightstands everywhere. So, this week, we are going to be talking about J. Albert Guay. Guay. Guay? Oh, it starts already. Oh my goodness, yeah, and I didn't even think that it was French, and I was like, J. Albert Guay. <laughs> I am super American. <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but yes, it's Quebec. It is Quebec, yes. And so it's more than likely French Albert. So yes, do get ready for probably a lot of pronunciation missteps. I am trying my best, and Amber is along for the ride. <laughs> yeah, I am not trying my best, guys. I did actually look up several different podcasts and YouTube videos, hoping for some pronunciation help. I gave up after like the fifth one because it was a YouTube video, and there's the name Robitaille in here. Which, that one I know how to pronounce because I had a professor Robitaille. He was my French lit professor. So <laughs> he came by it honestly, and I'm pretty sure he knew how to pronounce his own last name. And I think they said Robitoid or something like that. Robitoid. And I was like, no, this is useless. <laughs> this is not helping my pronunciation issues. So Robitussin. Robitussin. Professor Robitussin. Uh, he's married to Professor Nyquil. So I... Uh, a little loopy, okay? <laughs> Too much NyQuil. <laughs> Too much NyQuil. So, I'm going to do my best. I make no promises. I apologize in advance for any pronunciation missteps I make. 
I do not apologize, and I'm still calling him Albert. So. <laughs> Go ahead. That's mm. also fine. <laughs> so uh, another note is I used a lot from Roger Lemelin's 1951 article in McLean, so I'm going to reference him a lot because he knew the murderer in this case. He did. In that article, he would call this case, quote, the most horrible mass murder in the history of crime in North America. And the thing is, is that they didn't have Wikipedia in 1951, so he couldn't go and look at the mass murders list and disprove him like I did. Because some others that preceded it and surpassed it in scale of death were the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921, the Bath School Disaster in Michigan in 1927, which is episode 50, if you haven't heard it, and 75 years before the Guai Affair, in Cypress Hills, which is located in what is now Saskatchewan, somewhere between 20 and 24 people were killed. Huh. So it, it really actually wasn't. It was not. <laughs> yeah. But I can understand him not having that information right at hand. Yeah, I mean, back then you can't just look it up and you're like, this is the only one I've heard of, so this must be the worst. Exactly. And to his mind, it being so close to home, I'm sure it was. Yeah. So let's talk about J. Albert Guay. He was born on September 23rd, 1918, in Charney, which is uh, right across the river from Quebec City. He was the youngest of five in a Roman Catholic family. His father was a brakeman on the railroad. The uh, Canadian National Railway has a major national train yard there, or at least did at the time. So I don't know if they still do. So that made a lot of sense. And... Sharney, I should note, this little town, also has a company called Alex Couture, Inc. They, uh, they recycle animal corpses. Um. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Recycle. Mm-hmm. Repurpose? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, the past, for, for two decades, in the, the 90s and the 2000s, this, this company and the town fought over the smells produced by this process, as I you bet. might imagine. And then finally, the company put in filters to solve the issue. Thank you for that. But it's funny when your town's Wikipedia page has a, a section about... The, the smell. The smell, yes. So, uh, Guai's father died in a train accident when Guai was only five years old. I couldn't find anything about that accident. I searched high and low. But I did find that uh, his father got an Imperial Service Medal for government employees in 1919. So, pretty good at his job, I guess. Yeah, very good brake man. A good brake man. Train stopped every time except for that one. Oh, yeah. So, after this happened, Gly's mother doted on him, making it pretty clear that he was her little golden boy. Yes, he was certainly the favorite. <laughs> oh, yes. This is uh, that journalist I spoke of earlier, Le Malin. He knew him in adulthood, but this is what he says of uh, Guay's childhood. He was raised with the idea that nothing could ever be refused him. The most important thing in the world was that his every caprice should be satisfied. Even as a young child, he would quite willingly have murdered one of his little friends if he had wanted the moon and someone had offered it to him on that condition. Yeah. But, like, I mean, this behavior was was kind of given to him. I, I read an article where if he wanted a bike, he got one. 
Heaven help the teacher that dare scold him because his mother would march down to the school and rip him a new one. She was definitely an enabler. Yes. To the nth degree of like, not my perfect little angel. I hate having to blame the mother, but in this case, we the father was deceased. <laughs> there's not really anybody else influencing his behavior. You know, of course, there's nature versus nurture, but nurture does a lot. And in this case, it was a little too nurtury. Yeah. He also, uh, he wanted to be a little unique. He diverged a bit from the standard French-Canadian tradition of the time of only using your middle name, of being called by that, just by one letter. He wanted people to call him J. Albert. Just a little deviation, just a little. He grew into teenagerhood and frequented pool halls, but he needed a steady supply of cash to live the life of amusement that he wanted, so he sold jewelry and watches. It wasn't really an official job. I don't know for sure, because nowhere ever really specified, but I think he would just buy them somewhere, mark them up, and then sell them to people. That's all he was doing. Yeah, I did I did have in my notes that it was on commission, so I don't know. Oh, maybe I he did thought have a they job. were, like, borrowed from somebody, and then he would sell them and get, like, part of that profit. Yeah, it's hard to say exactly how this worked, but one, one way or the other, he was selling jewelry and watches. We know that. World War II came along, and he picked up a job at Canadian Arsenals Limited, where he was paid $40 a week, which today in U.S. currency would be around $630. That's around, if you're going to do the math, $32,000 a year. So an okay, you know. He's not making tons of money, but he's above the poverty line. Yeah, it's a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. And to earn this money, all he pretty much had to do was watch or tend to a grinding machine. Sit there and watch the grinding machine all day. I mean, I guess if something bad happens, you have to fix it or find somebody to fix it. Yeah, just make sure nothing bad happens. Just Mm -hmm. watch it. This job also kept him out of the war. Although, in Quebec, that was easier than it was in most places because they really were not on board with fighting what they deemed British wars. Yeah. He drove a Mercury sedan and had all these plans and dreams and delusions of going into the music business. He wanted to sing or lead an orchestra, but he didn't really have any talent or skill in these areas. (laughs) But he thought since he could, you know, whistle songs and show tunes that that would really get him the job or just somehow magical thinking. I don't know. As a young adult and then as an adult, he was said by those who knew him to be charming, generous, well-mannered, a nice dresser, but also, on the negative side, really prone to bragging. This guy loved a good flex. I love that. So one of the descriptions was, a handsome little man. (laughs) Yeah, it seemed he had not necessarily a baby face, but a youthful aspect to him. Definitely wasn't his face, but he was able to pretend he was younger than he was at some point. Because he had the maturity of an eight-year-old. There's also that, yeah. 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 If your maturity levels are lower, then people will more easily accept that you're younger than you actually are. Yeah. And he was also said to be somewhat high-strung. That's an understatement. That could have been the coke. (laughs) Yeah. The New Yorker, in an article later, described him... And this was a running theme in this New Yorker article. Every new person brought into it got a string of adjectives associated with them. Short, slim, and nervous, with handsome features, curly black hair, and an engaging smile. And also said that he was clever and quick and cocky. He, he was full of himself. He was quite cocky. He, uh, the ladies really loved him, speaking of which. And he seemed to enjoy dating around while he was working at the factory, but... 
there was one lady, one girl. He couldn't stop looking at her. He couldn't stop thinking about her. She was by far the prettiest. Oh, yes. So he decided this had to be his girl. So this was Rita Morel. And again, the New Yorker gives us a plump, attractive brunette with large brown eyes and nice teeth. Go to hell, New Yorker. And then from Lemelin's article, of all these girls, as you said, Rita Morel was by far the prettiest, with her great dark eyes of Andalusian beauty, a sensual mouth, fine teeth. <laughs> they really love her teeth. She had perfect teeth, apparently. Perfect teeth and magnificent black hair. She was far and away the most attractive girl in the factory, though she was slightly plump and rather short. It's just, they just can't. They just can't resist getting a dig. <laughs> she was curvy. Yes, she was curvy. Someone once called me pleasantly plump, and I should have punched them. Yeah. <laughs> I weighed like 125 at the time, for God's sakes. Oh, my God. So they married in August 1941. They would have both been in their early 20s. He was kind of a show-off when it came to stuff like that. So, of course, on his wedding day, he's going to go all out. Nobody really wore top hats in weddings in this area, but... He mm, did. He did. And so that was the day that Lemelin first saw him. And upon seeing him, he thought, there is a bluffer. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. And Lemelin said that Albert was all over Rita, but in a public way. Like, it was almost like he was acting out things he saw in movies. He was sort of play acting at what he thought an attentive, loving, amorous husband should be doing. So... There were kisses and embraces and pet names all done in public. And this is not the kind of neighborhood where that's really the done thing. Again, they don't do top hats and they don't do public affection. None of that. Yeah. But like Rita would go for a walk and then would be greeted upon her return home. He would meet her outside on the sidewalk and pick her up in a big embrace and give her a great big kiss in front of all the neighbors. And I'm in my head, I'm just like... I've been gone 20 minutes. (laughs) I went to the store. I got milk. What? I was not on a great cross-country adventure. I'm even picturing him. They didn't necessarily say this, but I'm definitely in my head. He's doing the dip. Yeah, no, in my head too. Yeah, Yeah. totally. (laughs) I'm glad we're on the same page there. He also, he really didn't fit in in this neighborhood because he had these pretensions of wealth and abundance. And this neighborhood was more kind of like lower middle class. As far as that was concerned, not very many people had cars, but he had his Mercury sedan. People didn't flash their cash around, but Guai did. He tended to wear clothes that were a step or two above what his neighbors were generally wearing. This was a blue jeans neighborhood, and he was a slacks man, which is, I think, definitely more of a distinction then than it is now. I mean, you wouldn't think twice if you saw... A guy walking by in blue jeans in a neighborhood and then another guy walking by in khakis. You wouldn't think yeah. twice. But back then, it was more of a class distinction to clothing. Which, I mean, I'm listening currently to an audiobook about uh, how to misbehave in Tudor England. Oh. <laughs> and Have an opinion. Oh, well, yeah, if you're a woman, yes. The first chapter is on swear words, and I need to go listen to it again with a pen and paper and take notes. But definitely clothes were one way of of misbehaving because there were things that, depending on your station, you were not allowed to wear. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's definitely decreased, but we can still see some of that in this time period in the 50s. 
Yeah, so he's in a jeans neighborhood, and he gets his shoes polished every week so that he has, like, the shiny black shoes. He has to have this pretension that he is a, a step above his neighbors. And there's nothing wrong, ostensibly, with looking good, wanting to look good, you know, wanting to have shiny shoes or wear trousers. There's nothing at all wrong with that. It's just that his motives were wrong. He wanted to show everybody that he was above them. Yeah. If you're going to go out of your way to look nice, do it for yourself. You know? Don't do it for other people. Who gives a shit? Yeah. He lived beyond his means, but he, he at least wasn't stingy about it. He did share his wealth with neighbors. Whenever somebody needed some money, he was always there for the loan. He would help in other ways, too, if you were having some sort of emergency or crisis. And he got back into the jewelry and watch business at this point. He would take in watches to repair, then would outsource them to actual jewelers who could do the job, because he couldn't. It is, again, this idea of him wanting to be able to do things, like be an orchestra leader or a watch repairman, but not actually either having the skill and talent or wanting to put in the time and effort. Exactly. He also had a jealous streak where Rita was concerned, but uh, that didn't stop him from going out and about with other girls. Of course not. And I'm going to, I'm going to bring it in here. Bitch, I say. <laughs> and that bitch is referring to Gwai. I don't like this man. No. So one time, Lemelin had given Rita a ride home. He reported about this that Albert, when he got Rita Holm was waiting outside, came up to Lemelin and said, Roger, I'll give you a word of friendly advice. No more of that. That sort of thing can only end in tragedy. That sounds like a fucking threat if I ever heard one. It really does, Don't you doesn't dare it? give my wife a ride home. I mean, if he hadn't given her a ride home, she would have had to walk. Probably in heels. We don't know if it was winter. We're going to talk about how cold it gets there. It... Just, mm, bitch, I say. Bitch, I say. He also met a woman named Marguerite Ruet, who will also, throughout, she'll be known as Marguerite Pizza. Oh, God, I still feel like I'm pronouncing that wrong, even though I tried so hard. At the moment, she had the last name Ruet, but then she would later marry her second husband. And then, for the rest, she's Marguerite Pizza. He met her at the Arsenal, where he still worked, she was about 10 years older than him, and of course, again, series of adjectives. Everybody writes this way. I believe this was from Lemelin, not from the New Yorker. She was a dark-complexioned, dark-haired, broad-faced, dumpy woman with a caustic tongue, and she was always willing to do someone a favor. At least they ended it on a nice note. I guess. <laughs> yeah, but once you get the word dumpy in there, you know, you're, you're not recovering from that. You're just not. She was also what I have termed in my notes an active mother. She might have birthed as many as 14 children with an unknown number of fathers, although she only raised two boys, both fathered by men that she married. So the other 12, we don't know anything about. That's the word on the street. And so her second husband was Pietre, and that's how she got the name. But locals had another name for her. They called her the Raven because she always dressed in black. She did a variety of things to bring in money. She did some waitressing. She rented out rooms in her home. And she also sometimes performed abortions. 
I did some digging there and the law in Canada or maybe specifically Quebec, I can't remember, didn't start being liberalized until 1969. So these would still at the time have been illegal abortions. She and Guai became friends and when asked, you know, is there anything going on between you two? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. She denied any sort of affair, and so did he, but her husband was like, eh. There's something going on there. I don't believe them. But then did nothing about it, so. Now, Marguerite had a brother, Jean Aureau, and it seems like she introduced her brother to Guai. And these three would um, revolve around each other and uh, just be horrible, so. Be ready for that. Well, Genero would also help uh, fix the watches. Oh, yes, that's right. He was he was one of his go-to guys for fixing a watch. Yeah. Because he, he was very mechanically inclined. Now, I, I think it's important to note that he was also uh, crippled. So, well, uh, to use the parlance of the day, I think we should say. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the description, was uh, crippled by tuberculosis, unable to walk, but he was, he was still very skilled because he could sit in his chair and do all these little mechanical things and fix the watches and whatever. He also, uh, he just liked to tinker, not even just with watches. He basically turned his alarm clock, which is just your standard issue alarm clock that you set it for at 6 a.m. and it rings at 6 a.m. He turned it into a clock radio by connecting it to his radio. Hmm. So the alarm would go off, but instead of the alarm ringing, it would turn on the radio. That's neat. <laughs> So that is really neat. Yeah, and he, here again, we get the description from the New Yorker. Jean-Henri Rouet in 1949 was a thin-lipped, gray-haired, dark-browed bachelor of 51 who had been afflicted for years with tuberculosis of both hips and could walk only with the aid of crutches. Oh, okay. At that point in time, he had crutches, but later on there would be the wheelchair. And he probably, it was probably that situation where you can only get so far, you know, especially with the hips. Yeah. <laughs> um... Uh, I myself have hip trouble. It's not tuberculosis of the hips, but there's only a certain amount of time that I can stand or walk before I start getting, you know, kind of flagging and being in more pain. And uh, also, hi, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> so another friend with, with some hip trouble and a patron. So, so yes, we know how the hip thing goes. And uh, Rue could be kind of a character himself, a little bit of a man about town. He had to spend some time in a Catholic hospital one time and, of course, Catholic hospitals. You've got a lot of nuns there taking care of stuff. And, but he wanted to have a little bit of fun. So uh, he had a sex worker come in for a little playtime and told the nun that they were married. This is my wife. Come back and check on us in an hour. Yeah, this is my wife for the next 45 minutes or uh, $50. So. <laughs> Around 1945, the arsenal closed. Kind of obvious reasons there why an arsenal would close in 1945. And so Gwai opened up a store in his district, jewelry and watch store. There was one report that he and Rita moved to Seven Islands, also known as Septil, which is about 950 kilometers away. But I don't know if, I didn't see that anywhere else. I only saw that in the one report, so I wasn't really sure if that was true. Because he was also spending quite a bit of time back in that area of Quebec. And their daughter, Elise, was also born that year. And he basically kind of started up this new line of work as a traveling salesman of watches and jewelry. He also, um, and this will be a running theme, he liked to make sure that he was insured. 
He liked to ensure that he was insured. <laughs> and uh, he, he did use that insurance quite frequently because his home constantly got broken into. At least four separate times. Yes, jewelry and watches stolen. And uh, also twice his store had some little fire issues. Yeah, and the insurance company kept paying it, so... Talk about enablers. But it is really... Yeah, it's definitely a thing with him. Insurance. Yes. Suspicious. Very suspicious. That's just... That's quite a string of bad luck. I'm just saying. And also, speaking of bad luck, the marriage was getting a little rocky. Rita knew that he was running around on her and having affairs, and she was losing her patience with that behavior. Well, okay, so this actually still happens today. When you have a narcissist and they get married, all the attention is still on them, so they're happy. When they have a child, that attention is no longer on them, and they get very unhappy and they stray, they cheat, they lash out at their partner. This is not uncommon, and actually I have a sibling that this happened to as well. They they had a child and then this happened. So it still happens today. So he's very much a narcissist. Oh, yes. I think we can agree on that. I don't like to diagnose people in the past, but uh, this one I will. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> they have a child. He's not getting attention anymore because, obviously, she's paying attention to their very young child. Mm-hmm. And so he starts sleeping with other people because he needs that attention, that reinforcement, that he needs it to survive. He also has these very romantic ideals about what his life should be and probably having a newborn isn't quite living up to those ideals, so he's going to look elsewhere for them. There even. is nothing romantic about having a newborn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, agreed. <laughs> I don't even have kids, and I can tell you that. <laughs> so yeah, that wasn't going well. On the business side, the business was losing money because he was just a crap businessman. He just was not good at it. And his debts were actually enough to get him rejected for entrance into the fourth degree of the Knights of Columbus. Now, this is a Catholic charitable organization slash pseudo-military. I don't even know. It's, I did some research because I was curious and I don't know very much about the Knights of Columbus. The fourth degree is the highest degree. They get regalia and a uniform. They get the title Sir Knight. They get to sit at a round table and fuck around with King Arthur's wife. Wait, no, that's, that's another kind of knight. Okay, so Close not enough. Not that last one. But maybe. Um, Fewer than 20% of the Knights of Columbus make it to the fourth degree. And get ready for some culty sounding bullshit. Because it's about to get real culty. This is from an article on McGill University's site regarding the fourth degree assemblies. Assemblies are distinct from councils and are led by a separate set of elected officers. The Supreme Board of Directors appoints a Supreme Master currently Joseph P. Schultz, and 20 vice supreme masters to govern the fourth degree. Each vice supreme master oversees a province, which is then broken up into districts. The supreme master appoints district masters to supervise several assemblies. And then each assembly is led by a navigator. Other elected assembly officers include the friar, the captain, admiral, pilot, scribe, purser, controller, and the color core. That's a whole lot of titles. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is like Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) You've got your mage, and you've got your warrior. Yeah, like there's so many. 
There's so many right now. Who's rolling the dice? What's happening? <laughs> it's very confusing. And it's, a, it's just a lot. They also, back in those days, got to wear, along with their regalia, these incredibly stupid looking hats. Everybody wants a stupid hat. At the end of the day, that's what we're all here for, is I a stupid hat. I can't blame them. I, I have my unicorn headband that also has cat ears and flowers across the front that I wore on our Halloween episode. So yeah. And so it was a change to a beret in 2017. But back then it was, all right, I, I, I think I'm, I've got the right idea that like the Hessian army had these hats that kind of went in a straight line from front to back. So like a tricorn, but without the third point, just went straight front to back. And then poofy feathers coming up all along. So it looks like this like... Feather mohawk? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know. I I might do some things for a feather mohawk. (laughs) I don't think you would join the Knights of Columbus along with their supreme master. I would if I was a supreme master. That is true. Yes. But now, uh, as of 2017, it was changed to a beret. There was a lot of upset about that. Well, I'm sure a lot of those guys got to keep their feather mohawk. For old times' sake. They get to keep it, but not wear you it. can't wear it ceremonies. Anymore. Yes. They also wear a ceremonial sword because there's, uh, there's nothing medieval or anything about tying military things to religious things, is there now? No, never happened before. I find them just a little bit disturbing. And part of that might be, oh God, I missed a whole... I got more. I got more titles. Oh. The Color Corps Commander, I didn't realize that went onto the second page. I thought that was the end of that list. Sentinels and trustees. Assembly officers are properly addressed by using the title faithful. So, for instance, faithful navigator, faithful sentinel. You, you put faithful in front of their, their title. So That's annoying. Faithful uh, supreme master Amber. It's too big of a title. It doesn't roll off the tongue. There's just a lot, yeah. They are, as you would imagine, quite conservative, uh, anti-choice, anti-gay marriage, they were a big part of the movement to get under God added to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954. If you weren't aware, it was not part of the Pledge of Allegiance before 1954. So people who were like, it's tradition. Mm, Not so much. And it probably shouldn't be there. Yeah. And also, you should have seen this coming, Amber. You're going to hate this. They're also a big part of the reason that Columbus Day is recognized as a federal holiday. Can we please just officially change it to uh, anniversary of murdering indigenous people? (laughs) Because we cannot celebrate Columbus. Columbus was an asshat and a murderer and was not a good human being. He shouldn't have a fucking day. Like, I'm totally cool with not working on any given day. Really? Just pick one. But can we stop celebrating a fucker? Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, Columbus is definitely in bitch I say territory. Fuck you, Columbus. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, that needs to get fixed, and I can't believe we're still living that far in the past. Can we just, as a people, just boycott Columbus Day? Fuck you, Columbus Day. Okay, but how do we boycott a day off and and sales? I mean, the sales, yes, we could just not shop that day, but when they give you a day off, do you just... Do you do the reverse strike where you show up to work? Yes, reverse strike. (laughs) Everybody shows up for work. Fuck you, Columbus. This bank is open. (laughs) If I ever want to get Amber in a rant, just bring up Columbus. Really anything. I'll go go on a rant about anything. (laughs) I went on a rant one time about a road across the street from Christy's house at, at her last house and how I was 
this was an hour-long rant about how I was going to take over the entire world just to take this road and rip it out of the world <laughs> because I was so mad that I got lost on it. <laughs> like, I will go on a rant about anything. Yeah. Rants are fun. <laughs> they're, they're cleansing. They are cleansing, and I'm, I'm full of rage. I'm a very happy person. I'm a very nice person because I bottle everything in, and then I lash out and do just weird things for my own amusement and the torture of everyone around me, <laughs> like uh, walking around muttering things under my breath at the grocery store is one of my great joys. It just, it just is. <laughs> Anybody that knows me in real life knows that I'm probably insane. And, uh, well, actually, most of the listeners, too. But... You have to have an outlet or you murder people. So yeah. instead of doing that, I just scare them. Yeah, there you go. I think a good rant is good self-care. Yeah, and you know what? Maybe Albert should have just ranted more instead of being a giant douche nugget. There we go. But he was too busy wanting Columbus to have his own freaking day, although... We need to reverse strike Columbus Day. I think we ha we're onto something here. Uh, unfortunately, it involves all of us working more. There's that, but every, you know, everything's got its downside. So yeah, well, I really wanted to be a... Fourth degree, Knight of Columbus. And they said, no. No, sir, you are not. Well, no, just no, because they wouldn't call him sir because he's not a knight. Neener, yeah. neener, neener. Neener, neener, neener. Like, no, you suck and don't pay your bills. That's exactly it. He had been so sure that he'd get a yes that he had a suit made up. I'm not sure if it was he commissioned one of their classic uniforms in their regalia or not, or if it was just a very fancy suit. But then when they were... Making their decision, they were like, you're way too deep in debt. We can't, we can't trust your decision making at all. And so it's kind of ironic that he's out there splashing money around. And the whole reason he gets rejected is because he's splashing money around. Yeah. Yeah. And Rita told someone the day of his rejection, poor Albert, he's crying like a child. They've turned him down. He wanted to become rich too quickly. Which is an interesting statement. But uh, so... Some of the neighbors, though, had also commented on, on Rita and Albert getting involved in these, like, fights and altercations where he would throw bottles and hurl insults at her and then the next day would go out and get her a present. Mm-hmm. Buy her flowers, all these things. You don't have any money. Stop buying things. Exactly, yeah. He can't afford to be trying to make up for his fights where he's an asshole. Yeah, and also just don't throw bottles at your wife. That, too. Yes, yeah, I can get behind that. That's pretty important. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So, let's look at this picture. He's in debt. He's married to a wonderful woman who inconceivably can't get behind his total constant philandering, has all these aspirations to be wealthy, and instead he's the exact opposite. And this sounds like about the time for a, you know, early 30s man in a misogynistic and capitalist society to start looking around for a pretty young fang who he can trick into thinking he's rich and important and worthy of her time. But he's not that kind of dude. Except he is. Enter Marie-Ange Robitaille, a waitress. She is... Listeners, I'm going to give you... Just play the Jeopardy theme in your head, because like copyright and stuff. But I'm going to give you a, a few minutes to guess at her age when he's in his early 30s. So I'm going to just, you know, count to five. One. All right. Got your guesses ready? How old was she? 17. 17. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm so angry. 
She does tell him that she's 19, but still, that doesn't, that's, that's not even, it's not even enough. Yeah, no, that's still weird, but sure. Okay. We get another series of adjectives to describe her as basically a collection of features. This writer in particular in the New Yorker, I swear. Marie-Ange was a tall, lanky, well-built, not very bright girl dick with a pleasant Well, voice. obviously. <laughs> well, yeah. With a pleasant voice, jet black hair, plucked eyebrows, a turned up nose, and large, dark eyes that frequently looked as if she hadn't been getting enough sleep. That's every teenager, dude. No, but also, like, once you get into their relationship, you kind of... Oh, it gets messed up. Yeah. It gets messed up. But the thing is, is that this is, as all of his relationships, I'm sure, an abusive relationship. Yes. And we know, we know the statistics. It takes seven times on average for someone to leave an abusive relationship and actually make it stick. And also leaving, as we're going to see, is the most dangerous time. Yes. So it's just, it's... it's, I've been here. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> exactly. We definitely can't blame her. She's young. She's impressionable. She is... Not the brightest. Not the brightest. And, well, damn it. I'm trying not to blame her. <laughs> no, but, like, I mean, we could all say that about ourselves when, when we were younger. But Oh, like, I was not the brightest at 17. Yeah, none of us were the brightest at 17. I really don't need to flash back to decisions I made when I was 17 no. and, and feel that cringe for the rest of the night. So I'm just going to pretend I didn't. And yeah, that cringe that is already out. there. I can feel it. I know. It's, really, it's right there. No, oh. but, I mean, she, she's a young girl. This older man who she thinks is something that he isn't is, is showing her affection. And that's the thing with a lot of abusers is they're really good at pretending to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. They're really good at it because that's how they get you in. And then it's too late to run away or very difficult to run away. Yeah. It's the, what is it? The lantern fish? With the, it, the bright light? Yeah, it shines the bright light. And so the fishies are all like, oh, oh. Sure, go towards the light, go towards the light. And then chomp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. So she at least knows that he's a married father. Does she? That was my understanding. Maybe not from the very beginning. I don't think she knew at the very beginning. She does eventually at least know that he's married. And well, I'm sure it comes out that he's a father when everything kind of blows up. But When everything blows up, yes, now she knows. One way or the other, he's putting on a show at least for her parents. Because yes. this is really interesting. An interesting direction for an affair to go. In that he's pretending that he's around her age. He gets a fake name, Roger Angers. So the, the interesting thing about that last name, though, is anger. Yes, you're right. It's it's A-N-G-E-R-S. Yeah. He is just a collection of angers, isn't he? <laughs> he is a collection of angers. <laughs> that might be the episode subtitle. He starts really actually courting her in the sense that a boy her age would have done. He goes and meets the parents and sits with them and talks and has conversations. And they think he's this like... 18, 19-year-old boy who's interested in their daughter. And he's showing up two to three times a week right? to the parents' house. It's insane. Like, he's actually, he's not just taking her off to a hotel for some sordid rendezvous. He's actually putting in effort to court her and pretend and put on this whole show. He buys a ring for her, an engagement ring, or just grabs one from a store, probably, is the more likely. Or from Rita, even. Yeah. Oh, God. And in 1948, this is kind of going on, the Guay family moved to an apartment house where he could have a store as well as a domicile. So it's, it's got an apartment and it's got a, a, a shop 
And so he can live there and work there as well. I always thought that that's both good and bad. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. It's kind of like working from home, good and bad. Pretty much all of us know (laughs) this story at this point. We're like, well, I don't have a commute, but I also never leave my house. So I can't figure out this one little note. The New Yorker relates these two things happening. He was trying out radio advertising on a morning show. So two events happened. He sent a check to the DJ for payment, and the check bounced. And the DJ, in its final ad for his jewelry shop, said, if you want your watch broken forever, take it to Gwai's place. Oh. And it's unclear which was the chicken or which was the egg. Judging by his constant state of being in debt, I'm going to assume the check bounced and the DJ was like, well, okay, we'll show you what happens when you can't actually pay me. (laughs) There you go. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. We have been absolutely soaked in true crime lately. Not a bad thing, but sometimes we need to just let our brains chill. And when that time comes, which it does like every day, we play Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the rare game that manages to hit that sweet spot of both casual and challenging. And the fun never ends either. There are over 5,000 levels to play, events, new fiends to collect. I love how I never know what's in store for me when I open the app. I wonder what might be in store for our level check. Level check time. I am up to level 2,725. Ooh, look at you go. I am on level 5,191. <laughs> oh, but I am at least a little over halfway. So. And, and something you have to look forward to. Sometime in the 4,000s, you start getting power-ups. Oh, nice. Best Fiends is one of those games that makes 30 minutes feel like 30 seconds. And it's free to download. So download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This episode is sponsored by How to See a Man About a Dog, Collected Writings. Are you bored of TV? Like drugs but can't afford them? Still paying alimony? Read the instant cult classic, How to See a Man About a Dog, Collected Writings. It's surreal, it's strange, it's How to See a Man About a Dog by breakout surrealist author Samuel Knox. How to See a Man About a Dog combines darkly comic short stories, powerful poems, and pulp fiction prose to create a heartbreaking and hilarious journey that readers will not soon forget. Get your dose of surreal prose and poetry with this dark comedy collection. Ebook available on Kindle Unlimited. Print copies are available on Amazon, The Book Depository, and more. So he's carrying on with Marie Ange for most of 1948, but it all comes tumbling down in November in a scene that is like soap opera reality show worthy. I love it. It's so great. She figured out who he had been seeing. And when he was over at the Robitaille house visiting with his little girlfriend and her parents... She storms into the damn house and just makes a damn scene, and I love it. I know. I do, too. She basically says, this guy 
is not Roger Angers. He is my husband. And thus, I think maybe your daughter should look elsewhere for a boyfriend. Yeah. Oh, and we have a kid together as well. Just by the way. I have procreated with this man. We have brought another life into an existence. And that life is sitting at home while I'm here trying to get my husband to come back home because he's messing around with your daughter. It's, it's just something. The Robitaille's were like, yes, we do think that she should look elsewhere for her boyfriend. Maybe out on the street after we kick her out. And they do that. So this is the thing. When you try to push two people apart only more likely to come back together, especially if one of those people is a 17-year-old girl with very few resources. And one of her resources is the person her parents don't want her to see. Yes. So she calls Guai. Of course, he can't bring her to his house, where his very angry wife is currently simmering. So he goes to a friend, Marguerite Pizza, who said, sure, I can take in your probably underage girlfriend. And actually, Marguerite was living in a nice place then, had had a bit of luck. Done lots of abortions. Also that, yes. Maybe a, a run of abortions after all the sailors came home. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, but soon enough, she and her boyfriend had to move back to the, you know, poor side of town. And, but Marie Ange stuck around at the nice apartment and Guai footed the bill with money I'm sure he didn't have. He's now paying for two homes and has no money. Yeah. Now, she kind of goes back and forth here a little bit. We, we kind of see her start to see the light, but he also sees her starting to see the light. At first, she's trying to hide from her parents and trick them, making them think that she was in Montreal. But then she decides, actually, I kind of want to go back home. And she gets in touch with her parents, and they want her back. They're willing to take her back in. So now she's sneaking around Gwai's back. She gets a train to meet up with her parents. He intercepts her on the train as she's coming out of the bathroom before the train can leave and forces her to go back to the apartment with him. They get back to the apartment. He burns her gloves and sleeps in her coat so she has no way of getting out. Now, it is winter 1949 in Canada, and even now, the average high for January is a high of 21 and a low of 3, and that's Fahrenheit. And for our Celsius friends, that is negative 6 and negative 16. So definitely need a coat and gloves. Yes, absolutely. And then when morning breaks, just in case the light of day and a little boost in the temperatures is tempting to her, he bites her face. Hoping. To leave a scar yes. so that no one else would want her. Yes. Yes. This man has gone way past the line. <laughs> way past. He also is like, hey, give me that train ticket. Because obviously I need money. I always need money. And uh, you're not using it. So I'm going to go turn it in and get a little refund. And then probably bounce some more checks. She's still telling him that she doesn't want to be with him. Her main reason is he's married and if she was ever into that, she's not into it anymore. And also, probably in the back of her mind, you're being a dick. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to be with you anymore. But probably knows better than to say that or else she might get bit more. I've never seen, in all the cases we've done, I think this is the first face biting. It might be the first face biting. Hmm. Some first tonight. In the tiny over on the Patreon, we had uh, our first egg evidence. <laughs> egg evidence. I shouldn't be allowed nope. to say words. 
<laughs> like ever. So despite all of her insistence that she doesn't want to be with him because he's married, or maybe because of it, he's like, well, the problem is that I'm married then. So if I take care of that, then we can be together. And of course, being Roman Catholic, oh, and also it being the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> the whole divorce thing, not super an option. So he's like, okay, well, I'll just kill her. I mean, let's see, Ten Commandments. I think thou shalt not divorce is definitely one of them, right? Oh, no way, that's thou shalt not kill. But he's not going to do it himself, obviously. He tries to get this guy, Lucien Corot, to do it. Lucien Corot was 21, kind of a, a family friend. He knew the guy. And so Guay goes up to him and he's like, look, I'll give you 500 bucks if you give my wife this wine and also put some poison in it. That's about 4,600 in U.S. currency today. So a chunk of change that he probably doesn't actually have. Yeah. I think uh, Lucien Corot was smart to refuse this on several different levels. Yes. So Corot is like, no, absolutely not. Go away. And then Guay says, all right, well, I'll give you 50 bucks to keep quiet. And Corot says, no, absolutely not. Go away. You would think that would make Guay nervous. Not one bit, doesn't seem. No, he's too busy terrorizing everybody. But then it's May, and uh, an event happens in the news, and Guay gets a new idea. There is a plane crash near Manila, in which a man was in love with a woman, that woman's husband was on this plane, and also, just coincidentally, so were a few time bombs that the lovelorn man had hired some felons to hide on the plane. Thirteen people died in that crash. It was three crew and ten passengers on a Douglas DC-3. So Gwai was like, hmm, if your wife dies in a plane crash, you're not married anymore, are you? That also works. And so he actually starts taking flights and timing them because he has ideas. He thinks, well, I'm a very smart man and I know everything. If the plane goes down over water, it'll be a lot harder for them to find the wreckage and piece things together and figure it out. So I just need to make sure that it goes down over water. I, I don't know how he managed to take all these flights and none of them ever got delayed. <laughs> it made him stop and think, wait a second, I can't actually time this perfectly, but somehow, somehow. So meanwhile, early summer, 1949, Rita moves out. She takes the kid, moves in with her mother. But of course, they're still married, you know. That doesn't mean that they're divorced. It doesn't mean he's free. And Marie-Ange is also sick of his shit. So she actually manages to get out. She gets back to her parents and goes back to waitressing. And so he's basically been left by both of these women. And we see how he lashes out. So Marie-Ange? Yes, uh, Marie-Ange. I'm not good with French. It's an evening in June. She's walking to work to waitress. And he finds her. And accosts her and, and pulls a gun and says that if you don't come back to me, I'm going to kill myself and maybe you too. I don't even know. And she's like, leave me alone. I'm going to be late for work because you're crazy. And so they're, they're arguing back and forth. And a policeman overhears this and comes over to help break it up. So Albert runs away because 
the police and he has a gun and is acting crazy. And he proceeds to walk Marie Ange to work just to make sure she's safe. And he, and he goes, you know what? I'm going to hang out here in case that scumbag comes back. Just going to have a real casual cup of coffee. Yeah. And of course, Albert comes back. The cop was like, I have his number. I know what his type does. They always come back. Well, and, and they kind of do. Yeah. And so the policeman arrests him and um, goes and books him on uh, attempted assault with a deadly weapon. So then Albert calls his friend Marguerite Peter. Mm-hmm. She gets him a lawyer. They get the charge reduced to one of carrying a gun illegally. And the punishment for that is a fine. Mm-hmm. No jail time. And I just wanted to point out something that struck me about his threat to her on the street. Where he says, if you don't come back to me, I'm going to kill myself and maybe I'll even kill you too. I think that's very indicative of how much high esteem he holds himself in. He thinks that even in her mind, it's a bigger threat for him to kill himself than it is for him to kill her. Meanwhile, she's thinking, oh God, please do. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. He's like, oh, she'll be so brokenhearted if I kill myself, much more so than she would be if she died in her late teens. (laughs) Like, it just really, I think it says a lot. But then, all right, everybody get a little ready to get frustrated, but also feel sad for her. Marianne gets back together with him. He tells her that she's going to get in trouble for tarnishing his family name by getting him busted for the crimes he was actually committing. Not, not how it works, but he says, if you know what's good for you, you'll go hide in Montreal for a little while until it's all... Until the cops forget what a naughty little girl you've been. What a naughty little girl. Naughty. So she goes, um, despite the fact that she would eventually acknowledge, looking back, that, quote, every time he came into my life, there was disorder. No shit. Right? He bites you, he burns your gloves, he sleeps in your coat, he accosts you with a gun. Locked her in a room at one point and hid her clothing. Yes! Yes, this absolutely like, bullshit. Like, yeah, that's disorder, I'd say. And so he goes to Montreal with her. This does not go well. I'm sure you're all shocked. After a month, they're broken up again, and she flees back to her parents. He gave her a parting note that said, I love you terribly. We'll be together again very soon. Yeah, and that sounds like a veiled threat, too, doesn't it? I think anybody being with this guy is a threat. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Him being wanting to be in a relationship with you is like, eh, I'm scared now. Oh, but at the end of that note, P.S., destroy this after you read it. And the reason that we have the words of this note is because she didn't. Good for her. So I think that whole not very bright thing was a little harsh on the part of the, the writers there. Yeah, I think it was just she was very young and got in a very ugly relationship. And it's being one of her first relationships... She doesn't know if this is how it's supposed to go. And she's probably thinking to herself, like, why do people willingly do this? Yeah, a lot of things, when you experience them for the first time in your life, you just assume, well, this must be what this is like. Maybe everybody's just keeping quiet about how much this sucks. But maybe this is just what relationships are like. Well, and I feel like most women have felt that way about sex the first few times they had it. <laughs> is, is, this, is this what it's supposed to be? Like, I thought it was supposed to be great. Um, 
I feel like I was lied to. Like, why did <laughs> Meg Ryan make those noises and when Harry met Sally? But I'm confused, but I can make those noises too. I mean, I guess I can try. I mean, I've taken an acting class, so I did community theater. They didn't make me do this on stage, thank God. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, I feel like that's probably like kind of her her view on it. it was like, is this is this why people get married? Like, why? I don't even understand why people enjoy this. Like, what? You also had certain things being sort of normalized, not to blame, you know, the media, the film industry and everything, but it's true that a certain amount of abuse, both verbal, psychological, physical, all of those, was sort of just kind of passed over and just... Normal. It was normal. And it was put on with this sort of blasé attitude of this is what everybody goes through. I mean, we're not that far from having episodes of I Love Lucy where, you know, Lucy misbehaves and Ricky says, you got some splaining to do, and then yanks her down onto his lap and spanks her. I mean, some people are into that. But I'm just, I'm just saying. It's pretty obvious that her cries of pain are not cries of, you know, that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, some people are into that. I don't think that they were showing spanking as foreplay uh, in the black and white days when they wouldn't even have Lucy and Ricky sleep in the same bed. They slept in That's separate true. beds. So That's true. I'm pretty sure that that was meant to put the woman in her place. Yeah. And then, I mean, stuff was normalized. Like, there's a Cary Grant movie. I can't remember which one it was. But it's drunk driving. They make a joke out of it in the very beginning of the movie. Cary Grant and the, the woman who is his wife in the movie, I can't remember who is in this, I haven't seen it in a long time, but they are having an argument, they're drunk driving, they crash, they die, and then they're seen as ghosts next to the car, just like making jokes about it. It's funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious that it was hilarious back then. That's, it, it, yes, it's so weird. So yes, we have to think in that day's, what media she might have been consuming a lot of this stuff was just normalized. It was normal to just smack a woman across the face in a movie. You know? So, she gets back together with him. They break up again. And that all happened. I, we already said that. I just wanted to kind of catch up. He gives her the note. And now, after that note, we'll be together again very soon. He seems even more determined to make that happen. And, of course, the path to making that happen, his wife is standing on that path. And he has to knock her off of it, or just knock her off, as they might say. That's another thing I don't really get, though. Like, she moved out. Yeah, she moved out, but they're still married. So what? But that's Marie Ange's hang-up. Or at least it was at one point, and now he's determined that if he just solves this one little problem... You know people who think, if I can just solve this one little problem, my whole complicated life will be okay. Everything will right itself. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's never true. There's always another problem. So he thinks if he can just get rid of his wife, he and Marie-Ange will get married and have a fairy tale relationship. And he tells a lot of people about this brilliant idea he's had. Enough people that one of them actually sends Rita a warning note. I mean, he is not good at keeping his mouth shut. And it's hilarious how bad he is at that. But especially he's talking to Marguerite Pizza and her brother, jean Rouet. And he has a plan and they're kind of game for it. Now, 
Theories would be put forward over the years as, as far as their motivation. That it was manipulation on his part, that they had a debt to pay, that they are indebted to him and that this will wipe out the debt, that it's just for money, he'll pay them. Or even that, you know, in the end, they'll blackmail him with this information. There's even theories that Marguerite thinks that if they knock off Rita, then she can tell Marianne, hey, so uh, he killed his wife. You might not want to really be with a dude that killed his wife. Get Marianne out of the way, and then she can have Guai all to herself. There's tons of theories. There's even uh, Rue had recently knocked a lady up, so there was going to be some financial cost one way or the other involved with that. There's another lady that he wanted to give a ring to. <laughs> so this guy's all over the place. And uh, in addition to some cash for helping Guai out with this little uh, project, we'll call it, uh, Guai also said, I'll also give you a discount on a ring that you want. It is half off a $12 ring. So he would save about $70 in today's money. And this is where I say that these people all suck, but in like the most pedestrian, sad way. Yeah. Like I'll give you a coupon. Exactly. Please join me in killing my wife and I'll give you a coupon. It's not even that. You could just give him the damn ring for free and I would still respect you both more. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's not even, I don't know. It's just so upsetting. Half off today only. Exactly. The, the banality and cheapness of how much they suck is just gross to me. <sighs> like, I mean, if, he, if he'd given Rue the ring for free, what would Rue have done then? Would he have committed genocide? Like, for God's sakes, what is your price, man? And so there's also the idea that Rue held a grudge against Rita because she'd rejected him once. And I like how the New Yorker says this. But while, as he saw it, he stood to gain Marianne, his cronies stood to gain very little. When the brother and sister were tried for murder, the prosecution never attempted to establish a motive for either of them. Speculative residents of Quebec have sought to fill in this gap. And so they come in with all those theories that I just mentioned. But the thing is, is that... I think we simplify it too much. When we're like, there has to be one reason to kill somebody. One motive, and that's it. I mean, sometimes, yeah. Maybe sometimes you just hate somebody. In the case of Guai, the motive is... There's definitely just one motive, and he wants to be with Marianne, and his wife is in the way, but... If Marguerite and Jean Roux are going to join in this, like, it could be a ton of things. It could be like, well, I owe this guy, but also, if I can get the other ladies out of the way, maybe I can get with him, you know? Well, and Jean Roux is probably like, I just kind of want to build a bomb. I'm, I'm good with that. I want to see if I can build a bomb. Yeah, I think a lot of it was the, the joy of tinkering for him. Although it's interesting that he did put it off at first. When first kind of given the assignment, uh, Gly came back a week later and saw that nothing had been accomplished. And so he, you know, lit a, lit a fire underneath Genre's ass. But there's also the idea of, you know, anybody who creates things, sometimes you let things kind of simmer in your head yeah. and work themselves together before you sit down and put it into reality. Yeah, you're sitting there trying to figure out how the gears are going to work, that it's going to work. And like, so I think he's, he's kind of doing like the blueprint in his brain mm -hmm. to figure out how he wants to go about putting this all together. Yeah, exactly. 
This from the New Yorker, as far as uh, Gly's attitude as he and uh, Marguerite and Jean Roux are making their plans. At the time he was planning to murder his wife, he took several strolls with his parish priest, during which he discoursed eloquently on the decaying moral standards in their community. Mm-hmm. This man is one walking, decaying moral standard. Yes, he is. All fully decayed at this point, actually. Marguerite went out and purchased the materials that was 30 feet of fuse, 10 pounds of dynamite in half-pound sticks, and 15 or 19 detonating caps, sources very wildly. She put it under a fake name, who supposedly somebody who wanted some stumps blown up, and she paid $6.89 for it, which is about $63 in U.S. currency today. That's still pretty inexpensive. That's not a bad deal. And so Y and Rita actually, during this time period, got back together. She, he, it seems like he initiated this, I'm pretty sure. Probably. He was being quite over-solicitous to the point that people were raising their eyebrows at how much he was fawning over her. And so Rue is supposed to be taking the dynamite and the caps and the fuse and making a bomb. And... When they talk about it, Guay and, and Jean Rouret are in the watch repair shop, and they're kind of like, well, we're stumped a little bit. And so a guy comes in. Now, some s- stories say that this guy was a, a former miner, retired, and some say it was a former policeman. <laughs> Interesting, either way. And they say, hey, could you help us out? We want to use the dynamite to kill fish in the lake. Which I was like, what the hell? Dynamite fishing. Blast fishing. I looked yeah. it up. I did not know. Or if I did know, I put it out of my mind because I didn't want it to be a thing. It is a thing. Stun and kill the fish and then mm-hmm. just gather them up. That was in a movie that my dad used to watch. It might have been Grumpier Old Men. Oh gosh, Grumpier Old Men. My goodness. Yeah, yes. I, I kind of actually remember that. A little bit. But my, my dad used to love watching those movies, and I, I remember that from being a kid is seeing the dynamite fishing, and my dad was, like, giggling. See, I probably so. blocked that out. Because <laughs> at this point, I literally wrote in my notes, I don't even know what to do with these assholes. Like, just the fact that they're like, well, we definitely don't want to commit a violence against, you know, anybody we know. It's, we definitely just want to go and lazily kill a bunch of fish in a horrible way that really fucks with the environment. So help us out with that? Not done so much anymore, but definitely was done. And really all they got out of this was a long lecture about how dangerous an activity this was and how they should use lime instead and exactly how to go about doing that. So there's that. And then this man, in addition to being a walking, decaying moral standard, is also a walking cliché. He ups their life insurance from $5,000 to $15,000. So from around 46000 in modern U.S. currency to 138000 in modern U.S. currency. Of all of his crimes, lack of creativity is definitely really super minor, but I also can't forgive it. <laughs> I cannot forget the lack of creativity where he always just does the same thing I expect him to do. Okay, well, I actually had a question about this because I was a little confused reading these articles. So from, from what I was understanding, there was also another insurance policy that he purchased at the airport, and this was a common practice at the time, that when people were getting on the plane, you could buy, like, a a quick $10,000 policy. Mm -hmm. And so he also did that. He got a $10,000 policy on her 
from the pl- the airline. Mm-hmm. See, it, it was a little bit confusing. There was a part of my brain that was like, okay, well, did he do just one of these things? And then that extra 10000 got roped into the existing life insurance policy in the media's account of it. Because both of those, he increased it by 10000 and he also, and or he bought flight insurance for 10000 Yeah. And I wasn't sure if it was an and or situation. I choose to believe just because I, he's just the, the cliche master that he went ahead for both. Yeah, I, I'm going to go both too. Yeah. And uh, someone else, anyone else almost might consider, you know, if you're going to blow up a plane that the other passengers maybe should come into your thoughts once or twice. Not he, this asshole. Not this asshole. He just thinks that this will be a tragic accident and there's nothing he could do to prevent their deaths, even while he's actively working to make their deaths happen. It's just the cognitive dissonance is just mind-blowing. They uh, did come up with one idea that if they had employed it, might have minimized the other loss of life. They thought, well, maybe we can have a taxi driver be in on this instead. We have the, the guys go on a ride with a taxi, have the time bomb already hidden in it. Then there's some car trouble, quote-unquote. And, of course, the two men will go off to find help and leave the little lady safe in the car. Wouldn't want to get your shoes dirty. And while they're gone, the car blows up, and therefore only Rita is killed. So Marguerite actually went to a taxi driver with her plan, because they're just going all over town and asking people, can you help us kill this woman? We're trying to kill somebody. You guys want to help out? You in? You in? No? No? All right, well, maybe next time. And the taxi driver said, no, I like my cab, and I'm not blowing it up. Apparently the loss of life really didn't matter to him. It was all about his cab. And Marguerite had to try and pass this whole thing off as a joke. Rouet would later say that, yes, he had made the detonator for Gwai, but he thought the whole setup was just the whole stumps blowing up idea. He's like, oh, he just pulled the wool over my eyes. And it was a really pretty simple endeavor in the end, just a detonator and alarm clock. Like, really, all the materials they needed were the the dynamite and all those other things we mentioned, the alarm clock and some batteries. They ran a test on September 8th, and when it went well, Guai called someone up and said, everything is ready. Although, a neighbor would later recount that there was a bit more to it than that, and it got a little bit darker. She'd been at Rue's house that night, September 8th, and said Guai had told Rue, my wife is leaving tomorrow morning. Will the parcel be ready? And Rue said, yep, it'll be ready on time. They then had an exchange that I don't quite get. Guai asked how much, and Rue said, we'll see when the time comes. I still haven't figured out exactly what that exchange is meant to accomplish there. I don't know. I think maybe she misheard. Because, hmm. like, how much could be, like, how much do you want me to pay you? Well, why would Rue say, we'll see when the time comes? No, he should say whatever his price is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. How much loss of life can we expect? Mm, all of it would be my guess. Almost definitely. Yeah, unless it, that was kind of my thought, like, how much damage to the plane? Yeah. I guess that, how much damage to the plane, I guess, is probably the most likely. So he enlists Rita to help him out with a little chore that needs to be done. Somebody needs to go to Bay Como and pick up some suitcases of jewelry there. 
Of course, this requires a flight. She very reluctantly agrees. He books her a ticket on flight 108. And as you said, he gets the flight insurance, and that $10,000 would be close to $100,000 in modern U.S. currency. So the flight leaves on September 9th. Uh, the morning before it left, Guai took a package to the train station, met Marguerite there, gave her the package. She then proceeded to take a taxi to the airport, where she got everything in place to have the package shipped to by Como and insisted that it had to go on flight 108. The package was 28 pounds. It was marked fragile. It was addressed to a fake name, Alfred Plouffe, from another fake name. That cost $2.72. That's $25 in U.S. currency today. And murder can actually be really cheap sometimes. Apparently. He then proceeded to go back to Rita's family's house, where they had been staying. And he and Rita took a taxi to the hotel. Guai would later say of his wife, the last thing between us was a kiss. Then he put her into the car that would take her to the airport. See, I feel like that's BS, though, because I saw another report that they were arguing that morning. Well, the airline's ticket agent, they actually had a ticket agent at the hotel. And she had sold them the ticket, and she said it seemed very much like Rita did not want to go. So they were, I think they were probably arguing over the fact that she didn't want to go and he's trying to convince her and she's reluctant. And then finally they resolve the argument with her agreeing no matter how much she doesn't want to. And then he gives her a kiss and puts her in the car. That's my best that guess. That makes sense. Yeah. She got onto the plane and what do you know, it was five minutes behind schedule. This report was in the Montreal Gazette about what happened as the plane was en route to its destination. Now, this is a eel fisher who is on the ground. Patrick Samard, 35, was about to see something he had never seen before, something more terrifying than he had ever seen before. It was an airplane, a big one, flying at about 500 feet. He heard the twin engines before he saw it, but he hardly gave it a thought. Quebec City's airport was just 40 miles away. Then he heard the explosion. A sharp crack in the sky. He looked up, saw the puff of white smoke. Debris was falling out of the airliner. A box. My God, was that a human leg? It banked sharply to the left, but then it straightened out again. Perhaps everything would be okay. No, it wouldn't. The riverman watched in horror as, like a shot duck, the plane fell from the sky into desolate Cap Tormente, near the tiny fishing village of Saint-Ocochon. The plane explodes, falls, not into water, into a wooded mountainside. Patrick Samard went uh, up the mountain to see what had happened and if he could help at all, and he found the plane. This is another quote. What was left of it rested on its right side. It looked as if it had dropped straight down. The back end was intact, but the cockpit and main part of the fuselage was twisted, torn, ripped apart. A rear landing wheel was twisted toward the sky. A luggage compartment door had burst open. Baggage, clothing, businessmen's briefcases, pieces of human bodies were strewn everywhere. So I have some uh, stuff about what was 
strewn everywhere. Oh, boy. Uh, so this is a quote from Le, Le Petri newspaper out of Montreal. Arms, legs, severed heads lying around on the ground. The forward part of the plane looked intact. The bodies were piled up in there as if they had been thrown forward when the plane crashed. It's horrifying. It really is. So aboard the plane had been a total of 23 people. That is 19 passengers and four crew. Among the passengers were four children. All those aboard had been Canadian with the exception of three men who were executives in the Kennecott, Utah Copper Company. And there were also two senior engineers for the Ontario Paper Company. The reason that that was important was this idea that high-level people might be a target. Yeah, the executives would certainly be a a good target. Yeah, because you had the the outgoing president of the company, the incoming president of the company, and the vice president. So that immediately dinged some bells that didn't end up actually being alarms for anything real. Uh, All aboard the flight died. At the time, it was the third worst crash in the history of aviation in Canada. Rita, when she died on this plane, was 29, and (sighs) this just, it gets me. Out of all those 23, hers was the only body with the face not mutilated beyond recognition. And somehow, although just about everything else that passengers had brought aboard with them had been destroyed or at least damaged, the claim checks for the suitcases she was to pick up survived. Hmm. Almost like the universe is like, eh, we'll just arrange these little things here. We'll just fix these little things to make something right, at least. One tiny thing right. Albert Gwai heard the news, and he finally went to the hotel to ask if his wife had survived. He was told, regretfully, no. This from the Gazette. He cried long and loud. The hotel management generously offered him a room to mourn in. A priest was called in to offer uplifting words of consolation. And Gwai, not one to just let a cliché slip past without reaching out to grab it, tried to visit the scene of the crime. Just do it all, buddy. Just do it all. He goes to the crash site with a couple of acquaintances and, I believe, Rita's brother? Police had roped it off and were guarding it from anybody who might try to snag themselves a really gruesome souvenir, like, you know, a briefcase or a leg. Uh, So they didn't get close enough to see really anything, but it's still gross. I, I don't know how anybody's brain could handle that. Well, okay. So just to have like a little like stop and think moment here. So at the time, their daughter is four years old. Mm-hmm. He would rather murder an entire plane full of people mm-hmm. and the mother of his child just so he can try to get with a teenager that doesn't even want him anymore. Mm-hmm. Like the insanity of, of this entire situation is you just murdered Murdered 23 people to try to hook up with a teenager who hates you. And you left a four-year-old with no parent because you were never a parent to start with. Right, exactly. Yes. It's absolutely appalling. And trying to get into that headspace is just something I'm not willing to do. I'm just going to leave it at unimaginable. 
and be okay with that. I have several times in my notes, what in the actual fuck? Yes, this is very much a what in the actual fuck kind of case, especially as far as everything he does, says, and is. Yes. <laughs> so. Now, novelist and writer from the uh, McLean's article that I mentioned earlier, Roger Lemolin, knew the Gwais before the bombing. And he first heard that Gwais' wife, Rita, had been a victim from a news report on the radio. His first thought when he realized that Rita had been on the plane, Albert had something to do with that explosion. He knew right off the bat, and he wasn't the only one. He had lived across the street from them for eight years in this district. So after the reports of the crash, he went to the neighborhood to see if he could talk to some mutual friends, just kind of suss out very gently and deftly if they had any thoughts. He didn't need to be gentle. He didn't need to be deft. People just basically walked up to him and said, I, I think Albert did it. Yeah. So they played poker together. So he met up with some of the poker guys and he's like, did you hear? They're like, yeah, Albert totally did it. And is basically just walking around town, grocery store. Hey, did you hear? Oh my God. Yeah, it was definitely Albert. Yeah, yeah. So basically the whole town is like, I know he did it. Yes. Like, it was totally him. Literally everybody knows. But they're kind of keeping it quiet so far. Gwai spent over $800 on her funeral. I did see one report that just the casket was $800. So one way or the other, at least $7,500 today. And he spent three days next to her coffin sobbing. With the giant floral wreath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Five to six feet tall with a note from your beloved Albert. Yep, yep, yep. He did find some time just two days after the plane disaster to, um, you know, ring up his attorney. He wanted to make sure he had his ducks in a row should the airline be found responsible for the crash. <laughs> the look Amber's giving me right now. <laughs> you know, if you... If you make that face for too long, it's going to freeze like that. <laughs> I make a lot of faces, though. Yeah, true. So, Lemelin went to the funeral. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name. It could be Lemelin for all I know. I'm just going French because it's French-Canadian. Yeah, because if you say it the other way, it sounds like Lanolin, which is what you put on your nipples when you're breastfeeding. So, let's just stick with the first way. Yeah, let's go with Lemelin. So, Lemelin. Lemelin. Do, 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 do. La, Lemelin. Do, 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 do. <laughs> We're not even drinking. <laughs> well, speak for yourself. So Lemelin went to the funeral, and Guai said, You know how much I loved her, but the important thing is that she didn't suffer. You don't think she suffered, do you? Also, later, when discussing the crash, he said, There's nobody monstrous enough to blow up a plane. Look in a mirror! Mm. So... And to the grieving husband and father who'd lost his wife and three children in this totally accidental crash, Guai said, Be brave, Monsieur Chapadon. Do as I do. Put your trust in God. I have lost my young wife. It's all about you, asshole. So they're trying to get to the bottom of this. And the authorities bring in experts to look at the remnants of the plane. They ruled out crew error, mechanical or equipment failure or malfunction, any sort of weather anomaly, 
once they had rolled everything out, they started to think about dynamite. But it's, it's not like this was the obvious go-to answer. The, the Philippines crash that I mentioned earlier, that bombing, was one of the first plane bombings at all. This wasn't just a, a, a thing that just happened. So, from what they could see, it looked like the explosion happened in the forward baggage compartment. And the conclusion that it was dynamite was very much bolstered by evidence that the seat nearest the compartment, where the blast had probably gone off, was found a quarter of a mile from the crash site. Wow. That doesn't happen when a plane just crashes into the ground. That has to be something that happens either in the air or as it's going down in order for it to make that distance. So they were like, eh, kind of think this was an explosion of some sort. Certainly was. So they tasked, this is really interesting, fascinating to me, the National Research Council in Ottawa with performing any sort of test that could roll dynamite either in or out. You know, let's figure out if, it, if it's dynamite, we'll get to the bottom of it. If it's not dynamite, we'll look at something else. And the NRC really came through. They built a reconstruction of the plane's interior and then blew it up with dynamite in the area where the explosion was thought to happen, the forward baggage compartment, and the result was practically identical to the actual crash. It, pretty much with a, it was almost a one-for-one one comparison. So they were like, yeah, they were like, yep. So authorities start looking at the passenger manifest to see if there's anyone who might have a connection to somebody with a motive. Once they get past the executives, they see, okay, there's five married women on here. And they immediately start to wonder, okay, do we have a target in this group? They see the flight insurance policy that Guai had purchased for Rita. And they zero right in. And the police also in Quebec remember Guai from the gun incident. That had just been a few months ago. So they go to Marie-Ange. And they had a description at this point of the woman with the package. Because they had at least tied that much. They knew that there was a woman who had dropped off a package at the airport and insisted that it be on flight 108. And so they were like, okay, let's see if we can tie this lady to it. So they go to Marianne and they say, you know, you know, why do any of his friends fit this description of this lady wearing all black? And she says, uh, yeah, that sounds like Marguerite. And for some reason, her brother even has a picture he can give them. I don't know why, but it, I mean, it's helpful. So, but it's just weird that we don't even have any pictures of Marianne that I could find anywhere. And she's not a minor anymore at this point, at least like American current standards of 18 being past being a minor. She's like 19 now. I feel like I saw one picture of Marianne. So they also get a call from the friend of a taxi driver named Pelletier. The driver had told his friend that the day of the crash, he had taken a woman with a heavy package to the airport. He knew all about its intended destination because he didn't just drop her off. He was a really great taxi driver. He carried this package to the counter for her and stood by her side while she made the transaction and even made change because they didn't have the correct change behind the desk. Well, also, it was suspicious as fuck because she goes, hey, watch out for, for bumps. These aren't eggs I'm carrying. Oh, I missed that. I didn't see that. <laughs> wow. Well, 
She later tells a story that she thought it was a statue of the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The police showed Pelletier a picture of Marguerite Pichet, and he says, yep, that's the lady with the package. They get another call. Lucien Corot. That was the guy who Guay tried to pay off to knock off his wife, and then tried to pay off to keep his mouth shut, and who said no on both accounts. So Guay, at this point, is starting to realize the heat's on him. So he goes and visits Marguerite Pitra. He figures she's kind of the loose screw here. He tells her, This whole airplane disaster was all your fault. You delivered the package. It's your doing. So you should just do yourself in. Get some pills. Go, you know, huff some gas from the stove. Make sure, before you do though, make sure you leave a note explaining your motive, which I will tell you now, your motive was that you blew up the plane because you thought I was on it and you wanted to kill me to get out of your debt. She actually kind of does attempt suicide. She, she called the hospital and said, I have really bad abdominal pain. She ended up in the hospital and then she said that the staff wasn't paying her enough attention, so she swallowed a bottle of pills. And then the police come and chat with her about everything that happened. And then she tells them the Virgin Mary statue story. And she said, well, I just did it because I owed him a favor and it's the Virgin Mary. Of course, I'm, I am not opposed to proliferation of Virgin Mary statues. I'm a good Catholic. And she said she'd only found out that Rita was going to be on the plane when her brother, Jean Leroux, told her, kind of throwing your brother under the bus. Yeah, just a little. Just a little. And she said that she'd also gone to purchase the dynamite for him to get out of her IOUs. And again, she thought that it was for blowing up stumps. That's why she put the name of the woman whose stumps they were blowing up on the slip instead of her own. On September 23rd, the police arrest Albert Guay and charge him with murder. And this is just a little side note. Oh, one of the executive's sons. I, I saw that, yeah. He kind of wanted to get some super revenge, didn't quite have the money to do it, so he robbed a liquor store trying to raise money in that way. <laughs> I guess if you're robbing a liquor store, is it raising money? I mean, you're picking the money up and putting it in your bag. I guess you could, you're raising it. He, he wanted money so that he could fly to Canada and kill Albert himself. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I, I honestly, props to that dude. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm all as for long it. As, as long as he didn't hurt or kill anybody in the commission of the robbery, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not good with that. I'm not for vigilante justice, but I am for why hurting. I'm fine with that, actually, honestly. Uh, meanwhile, Marguerite is still free, and she's got hordes of reporters and onlookers crowding outside her house, and she charges 150 bucks to pose for pictures. I'm not sure if it's that, like, one photo shoot that everybody can take pictures or a piece. Because if it was a piece, she was raking it in. But she was hilarious in, in a terrible way. Yes. In an absolutely terrible way. So a reporter comes to her door, and she opens the door, and the reporter's a little curvier, perhaps. And so she goes, okay, how many months? Because remember, she did an abortion business on the side. And she's also possibly been pregnant 14 times. Mm. She can practically smell it at this point. Yeah. 
But like even her antics in court cracked me up and I shouldn't laugh because I mean she did a horrible thing. But she's like pinching cheeks and ears of the police. Yes. She had a song. She actually had like a a suggestive ditty <laughs> that she sang to a courtroom custodian. I'm like I don't I don't speak any French so I have no idea what it means, but it was apparently kind of like, "Hey, hubba hubba, what you doing after this?" I did actually look this up, and it's not a one-for-one translation, but it's like, when we are together. So, like, hey, let's bang, babe. But when you look it up, whatever the title is in English, when you look it up, you get, I think it was a song from Frozen also has the same (laughs) title. So, good goddamn luck. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not that. Yeah. So, yeah, she's wacky, Marguerite is. She's like, uh, instead of bitch I say, she's like, bitch I say. She's like walking around being like, you're cute. Yeah. We together. Oh, my God. The New Yorker reported that, just, just a few little side notes here and there of things. A steamer caught fire in Toronto. 132 people died. And people in Quebec said, well, it was probably just Albert trying to get rid of the family dog. <laughs> there's, a, there's a definite uh, hard edge to their sense of humor, and I love it. I'm here for it. The trial begins in January 1950, and it is a spectacle as usual. And you know what? Much respect to Canadians lining up for trials for hours when it is negative 25 out. I don't know if Eek. that's Celsius or Fahrenheit, but one way or the other, it's fucking cold. Terrible, it is. either way. Yeah. This from the New Yorker, uh, which would only be three years later that they published this. I love this. Guai was tried by an all-male jury, since in Quebec, the rights of women, like those of drunkards and the criminally insane, are circumscribed. You know, you know, New Yorker, it, all the strings of adjectives, even like dumpy and stuff like that, it is forgiven. Just for that one line where you recognize the bullshit that this is. Guai was pretty blasé. Didn't seem to care much, got a little shut-eye, you know, as you do when you're on trial for the murder of 23 people. Marguerite and Jeanne Rowe testify at the trial. They do their best to look innocent. They have their little stories. Marie-Ange also testifies that she'd seen Guay 10 days after Flight 108 crashed. Marguerite had invited her for a visit, and Guay showed up not too long after she got there, so a little bit of an ambush situation. From the Gazette... He tried to kiss her. She told him to cut it out. When she mentioned the terrible plane crash and the death of his wife, he said, I'm glad. It's definitely a moment when you step back and you say, whoa, dude, (laughs) like, come on. But uh, she says on the stand that she didn't love him anymore. And for all the testimony that he was just kind of, like, yawning through, he turned absolutely gray at that. They said his lips even went blue. Yeah. I I love this description. He looked like a man whose body was beginning to decay. Well, like I said, he's walking moral decay. He is. (laughs) And it's finally catching up to him when his wife is dead and his lover is on the stand in front of a room full of people. How embarrassing to him. 
um, saying, I don't love him anymore. The woman he did all of this ostensibly for in his head. She didn't want it. Yeah. <laughs> Never. But the woman he did it all for is saying, no, I'm, I'm just not into him anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, after two and a half weeks of uh, testimony and statements, the jury goes out to deliberate. Amber knows how long it is. Oh, I thought you would because it was your guest during the, the tiny. Oh, 17 minutes. Yeah, 17 minutes. I did not know that. That was actually just a guess. That is funny because I was like, oh, she must have just brought in 17 from the Kawhi notes. <laughs> I just like odd numbers. 17 is a good number, yeah. 17 minutes, which is how old Marie-Ange was when they met. Not 17 minutes old, 17 years, I should specify. And the verdict is guilty. He's sentenced to death by hanging. The judge was so overcome that he cried and said, your crime is infamous. It has no name. No, we, we have a lot of things to call it. Yeah, but like, how can something that has no name be infamous? You need a name in order to be infamous. I'm just, I'm just saying, but yeah. I get it. It's an emotional time and maybe it's a translation error too. The judge probably just wanted to be quoted. Yeah, probably. Once Squire's fate is sealed, he decides it's time to do a little bit of writing. And so he sends a, sources very wildly, either 40 or 100 page account of the murders, including the parts that Jean Roux and Marguerite played in them, to the premier of Quebec, Maurice Duplessis. Those two are then arrested and charged with murder. Rue is tried first. He's found guilty just nine days before Guay was hanged in 1951. So it was before the hanging. Uh, they had asked him if he wanted to appeal. And he goes, why? For whom? I've no more interest in living. Well, yes, because his pretty young thing didn't love him anymore. Yeah, and, and that's why. Like, literally, when she's like, I don't love him anymore, and he's like, I'm done now. Yeah, I think that's an, that's an important distinction to make, because it's not because he murdered 23 people. It's because she doesn't love him anymore. Exactly, yes. The, the 23 people don't even count in his head. So, yeah. Reportedly, he had some last words for us. En moi, je me célèbre. Which is, at least I die famous. Lemelad does dispute this in his story about it, but his only evidence is that the day of the hanging, Guai was asking like the prison doctor some anxious questions about the process. It, it doesn't see, he doesn't really present any proof that he didn't say it. So it, it, it might even not necessarily have been his last words, or it could be a nervous joke said to the one of the guards before he was hanged. But it is pretty proliferated that these were this was a thing he said before he was hanged and we have this little okay so they have these sections in, in the old-timey newspapers well they'll just have little blurbs of like jokey bits and it's just like one sentence two sentence and they have one about the the guai hanging je albert guai's slight fall from grace in a quebec prison this morning just goes to show what trouble a feller can get into when he starts sweet-talking a waitress. Wow. That is something, yes. That is something. Yes, it is something. Marguerite, while it's actually hard, kind of hard to pin down, Rue is found guilty. 
Marguerite is arrested and charged with murder, and she actually ends up with a heap of other charges on her head. Perjury, intimidating witnesses, the attempted suicide she was charged for, uh, the intimidating witnesses, that one I have specifics on, at Rue's trial, at her brother's trial, she said to a witness, keep your mouth shut. I have struck before and I can strike again. Yeah, that's what we call really guilty. And so Rue is found guilty and then uh, she's found guilty. Marguerite is found guilty of murder. Her response to this is to tell the judge that he was Pontius Pilate and she was Jesus Christ. I don't know why my voice went into that accent, but I needed Scottish to dramatize. Scottish a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I felt the need to dramatize, and for some reason it went Scottish. I don't know why, and I apologize. It, no, there's nothing Scottish here. Not one drop. No, but I feel like Scottish people would definitely have that reaction in a, a court of law. <laughs> so, I mean, that's fine. Yeah. I am Jesus Christ. I am Jesus Christ. Jean Rouet was hanged. He was age 54 in July 1952. And at that point, because of the tuberculosis in his hips, he went to the gallows in his wheelchair. Marguerite was then hanged on January 9th in 1953. She was unlucky number 13, the 13th and final woman to be executed by hanging, or really executed at all, in Canada. Well, she was the final woman to be executed. I don't know if they did other shit before the hanging. Probably. They might have, you know, chopped some heads, burned some witches. I don't know. Canada's last execution would be in 1962. The country de facto abolished the death penalty in 1963, and then legally and officially in 1999. Good for you, Canada. Good for you, Canada. Honestly, like... Don't be like us and just keep this proliferating and potentially murder innocent people. That's what I'm saying. So, and then finally, most of the record from Flight 108 after the final execution of the final perpetrator was cleaned up, sent off to a scrap heap. But, and there are pictures we'll put on the social media. There's still some there, like a silent memorial to the 23 souls that were lost. Oh, I made myself sad. <laughs> Well, it is very sad. Appropriate. But it's a very peaceful area. It's like a wildlife refuge. And so it's just very untouched by humans. And I think, you know, I'm sure that they took remains as much as they could. But I'm sure there's some remains that ended up there, you know, either from the explosion or whatever. And I think it's suitable for their remains to be in such a peaceful, quiet place. So. All right. Well. God, it's so much better when we can end on a funny note. <laughs> but I'm um, not finding it in this one. So. No, I was going to make a comment about like wooding. And then I was like, no, it doesn't feel right here. Doesn't feel right here, does it? Well, we have uh, a shout out to new patron. Oh, Got to get the singing voice ready. Jade Lloyd. I can't wait until there's like 25 new ones every week. And I'm like, why did I sing? Why did I say I would sing them? And also, I believe I owe many apologies to patron Amanda Peters, whose Amanda. birthday We're was, sorry. was a few weeks ago. And I neglected to wish Amanda Peters a happy birthday. I'm not singing it, but happy birthday. Belated. So yes. 
thank you to all of our patrons and especially to new patron Jade Lloyd. And we appreciate so much uh, what you guys do for us. If you want to join them, go to patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. You can also, as we mentioned, leave a tip in our tip jar on Good Pods. You can be the first to do it. And we'll give you a shout out for a tip too. You get a shout out for a tip either that way or through PayPal. Uh, that's oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. You can use for the PayPal. We have uh, merch. I need to come up with some new merch. I've got ideas written down. I just haven't actually sat down to do it. Uh, we have the new logo coming up soon, so we'll definitely have some new merch then. Social media, you can come see us, Old Tummy Crimey, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we put up media related to the show. And, you know, you, you can see pictures of people involved. I'm going to put the picture from, you know, the actual crash site. It's not gory or anything. It's just twisted metal in the overgrown forest. And stuff like that. I try not to put anything disturbing up. I considered putting the ship explosion up from the Helen Duncan episode. I just kept on leaning in and being like, those are men sliding down the side. Oh my God. And I was like, nah, it's too much. I don't want to. <laughs> so I'm very careful not to like ruin your morning coffee with, you know, videos of, you know, a couple hundred people being killed. Yeah, I try. We try to avoid that. And there's also a short story, short podcast where you can come and listen to me and friend of the show, Chris Garcia, talk about short stories. And we do it quickly. We just hit up a Ray Bradbury story that had me, it, I gasped at the end. I felt it viscerally. And it was in its way predictable because the, the genre has, you know, horror and such has evolved. But I also looked at it from the lens of a true person who consumes a lot of true crime media and also creates some of it. And I had one point where I was like, oh my God, anybody who's even listened or watched or read true crime for five minutes would want to actually like smack this girl across the face for how stupid she's being. Turn <laughs> around. Stop. Don't go alone into the woods. <laughs> so it was very frustrating, but good story. And we had a great time talking about it. And yeah, so if I have any more bullshit, uh, the fact that I really super have to pee is erasing it from my mind. Amber, what you doing this week? Um, I am looking up a lot of recipes for our upcoming turkey day. I am trying to figure out what I'm going to do that is uh, doable for me and also delicious. So uh, that is a lot of my week. I'm already planning some different appetizers and making sure I have all of the things I need because I've never made Thanksgiving dinner before. It's always a fun adventure your first time. Yeah. <laughs> Even your second time. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I am jumping a holiday ahead of you. And I'm going to be doing Christmas shopping. Because I said I was going to this weekend and then I didn't. So I'm going to be doing some more of it this week. And I actually am not preparing a Thanksgiving meal this year for the first time in several years. So, so the first time you don't, I do. I'm pass actually the torch. kind of, ex yes, exactly. I'll pass the torch over to you. I'm kind of happy about that, even though, uh, like I said, our turkey is amazing. But you can bring me, you're going to cook your turkey with the bacon yeah. under the skin. So you can bring me some turkey. If it turns out. I'm sure it will turn out. You are, you, you have such a, you are magical in the kitchen, Amber. I love cooking, but I've also never cooked a turkey before. So this is, this is like a new thing for me. Cause I don't like turkey. <laughs> I just, I just really feel like you're gonna, you're gonna master this like within seconds. You'll have it mastered before you even put the damn turkey in the oven. You're already incorporating cheesecloth. 
<laughs> I am. I am because I'm insane and I just want it to be awesome. And so. it will be. It absolutely will be. So that's what I'm doing. I'm menu planning and um, you are not, but you are Christmas planning. All right. Well, time to pee. Yes. Well, real quick, we have to say thank you for listening to our uh, filthy words. Bye. Bye. And what were your sources this week? My sources. Good question, because we forgot to do that last week. <laughs> my sources. Sources. My sources. My sources. <laughs> Planes, trains, and autoerotic excruciation. <laughs> I can't talk. <laughs> well, that's, we've been doing it for two hours. I quit. <laughs> Roger Lemelet uh, in McLean's. E.J. Con Jr. in The New Yorker. Thanks for those strings of adjectives, dude. The Knights of Columbus website. Catherine, Catherine Le Chausset on CBC. Canada's History and from newspapers.com, The Gazette. I have Mysteries of Canada. I can't talk. Mysteriesofcanada.com, executed today. History Collection by Khalid El Hassan. McLean's by Roger Leblon. Canadahistory.ca by Andre Pacha. CBC, New York Daily News by Mara Bobson. And The New Yorker by EJ Kahn. Oh, your vagina gourds over here. <laughs> I forgot I left my vagina gourds there.